1: Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences. So there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews. So you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Good day. Good day. Hello, Max. What uh, what have you got for us on the show this week? You guys have got a fun one. This week on the show is Michael Shulman, who has worked at The New Yorker for uh, years and has an interesting route to The New Yorker. But the reason that we had him on right now is because in the end of December, he published that profile, which I'm sure you both read, of Jeremy Strong, who plays Kendall Roy on Succession. I'm not sure there's a magazine story that has... Uh, lit at least my particular corner of the internet on fire in the way that that piece did in many, many years. And uh, we talked all about how that piece came together, what his experience of the virality of it was, what his experience of having like Hollywood luminaries attack him personally in the wake of it was like, it was a great one. It was really, really fun to talk to him about that article and also how he thinks about profiles in general. I look forward to this. Uh, We are brought to you, of course, in partnership with Vox, who help us make this show. Thanks to Vox Media. One more thing that I should add is uh, we really do spend a lot of time talking about this particular profile of Jeremy Strong and Succession. So if you have not read it, I, who hasn't read it? But if you haven't read it, you should go read it. And also, if you are somehow midway on Succession, have not gotten to the end, there are some spoilers in this episode. So if you've not gotten to the last episode of Succession, this one might not be for you. So you're telling the listeners three seasons of Succession, read the profile, then
2: listen to the podcast.
1: I am betting on the Venn diagram overlap of the long form podcast audience and the uh, audience for that show being pretty significant but but yes i am trying to tell the people who do not sit in the middle of that venn diagram be warned i'm not saying that that's a bad idea that would be a great use (laughs) of your next weekend spend the whole weekend binging prepping fire up the podcast on monday no one loses agreed and with that (laughs) here is max linsky with michael shulman Michael Shulman, welcome to
2: the podcast. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me.
1: Such a pleasure. I feel like we should tell people you and I have known each other for a really long time, but I don't think we've ever been in a situation where you were like contractually obligated to answer all of my questions for an hour.
2: Was there a contract? I didn't sign one. Yeah, I think there's like <laughs> an
1: understood contract. <laughs> uh, this is great, man. I'm so, uh, I'm so excited to do this in part because... I've wanted to for a long time. You have been writing profiles at the New Yorker for years. Before that, you were writing tons and tons of talk of the towns. I also wrote this book about Meryl Streep. But in December, you wrote a piece that made it impossible for me to not have you on immediately, which was about the actor Jeremy Strong, who plays Kendall Roy on Succession. Literally no one who's listening to this episode has not heard about that profile but I'm hoping we can start at the very beginning and just walk through the entire process of reporting and writing it and also what your experience has been like living through one of the most viral and discussed profiles in many, many years. So,
2: Michael, how did it all start? So I pitched this idea at one of our weekly ideas meetings at The New Yorker about a year ago now.
1: I like to believe that all pitch meetings at a place like the New Yorker must be like vicious battles where everyone's shooting down each other's ideas, but that can't actually be how it is. It's nice, right?
2: They're fun, um, kind of. Once you get used to them, you know, it's about ten or twelve people each week. Uh, some, you know, senior editors are always there, and there's a smattering of writers and editorial staff that is invited week to week. And we each have to bring three ideas, and you know, they've obviously been on Zoom lately which is its own kind of thing. But on my first couple ones of them, I was so nervous and tongue-tied. Now I feel like I know how to go to them and have fun. And it's a pretty friendly atmosphere. I wouldn't call it brutal at all. What was your pitch for Jeremy Strong? Why profile him and why do it now? Well, so first I should say that reports of my previous relationship of jeremy strong have been somewhat exaggerated like when it came out there were some people on the internet saying oh well this is like a college friend with a grudge and i did not know him in college you know i I say in the piece i didn't i never met him there i knew of him because he was an upperclassman who was known as a an actor and i saw him in a couple of plays i then met him the summer after I graduated at this internship at a film production office. And he did teach me how to use the copy machine. See, (laughs) I had not worked in an office before and I was supposed to photocopy a screenplay. And I thought that I had to put every single page face down on the glass. And he, (laughs) he showed me that I could just feed it through the top and press one button. So that saved me about three hours. But I didn't see him after that. So when I first sat down with him for an interview for the profile he didn't remember me. So that's how much not friends we were. But Mm -hmm. part of the pitch, both to him and to the magazine for doing this, was that because I had known of him, I had followed his career over the course of 20 years. And, you know, most of the world knew this guy as Kendall from Succession, but I had seen him in all these off-Broadway plays. And whenever I saw a movie where he had a small part, like Lincoln or Zero Dark Thirty, I would take note and go, oh, that's, that's Jeremy Strong. Hey, there's the uh, guy from The Copier. Good for him. Yeah. So uh, I had this larger perspective on his career. And I also have some social overlap with him, you know, from college and from the sort of New York theater community. So I had heard like bits and pieces about you know, stuff that ended up in the profile in in fact-checked form, like about how he had brought Al Pacino to Yale for this masterclass. I went to the masterclass. I I saw it from the audience (laughs) as a first-semester freshman, but I had no idea that this was like a Jeremy Strong production.
1: I feel like an important footnote to that story is that he, like, nearly bankrupted a hundred-year-old theater company at your school because he, like, used all of their money to get Al Pacino there. Yeah,
2: I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I sort of heard about through friends. And, you know, I knew that he had been Daniel D. Lewis's personal assistant in 2003, because I worked on pre-production in that internship for that movie, you know, and I knew that he had lived in Michelle Williams's basement for a time. So I kind of knew coming in that I had the sense that he had lived a, a more eventful, interesting life than the average appreciator of succession knew. But of course, at that point, I, I, there was a lot I didn't know and was yet to find out. Was he
1: excited about doing the profile? I imagine that when people get that call from you, it's both
2: thrilling and kind of daunting. I mean, he seemed to throw himself at it with the just megawatt intensity that he applies to everything in his life, especially acting, but everything from like coffee to clothing. You know, I remember our first interview was last April at Le Crocodile in Williamsburg. And it lasted two and a half hours, the first half hour of which he just wanted to talk off the record like as a prelude. And then (laughs) one thing I remember, you know, looking back on that now is when I talk to publicists to begin this process, I tell them kind of what the ingredients are for a New Yorker profile. And I always say like, you know, I need to sort of follow the person around and see see them out in the world. But I also need at least two sit-down Interviews of some length, and when I first sat down with him, he said we can only talk twice, and I was like, no, 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 that's <laughs> at least twice. We can talk as much as you want. And then at the end of the night, after this two and a half hour, you know, banquet that we had at La Crocodile, I gave him my my number on a on a business card and said, you know, if you want to be in touch or whatever, here's my number, and I almost immediately started getting texts that didn't stop for the next six months. You know, I would wake up to multiple paragraph texts about his thoughts on acting or like a poem that he was thinking about or pictures of him on the set. So it was just a process that started out with intensity and did not let up. And that's outside the norm. I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think my previous profile subject before that was Wendy Williams, who is probably the most different human being you could find from uh, Jeremy Strong. And she kind of, she had no real awareness of like what the New Yorker was or what this is about. She had no idea why I kept showing up to interview her more. Like she'd see me and be like, you're back. She also kept asking (laughs) if she could be on the, on the cover multiple times. And I would have to be like, Wendy, no one is on the cover. The cover of the New Yorker is a drawing of a flower. And she'd be like, well, my ring has a flower. (laughs) <laughs> She'd be like, you know, someday I'll, maybe I'll be important enough to be on the cover of your very important magazine. I'd be like, you—that that is not, I, I literally had to take an issue out of my bag and show it to her and be like, this is the, what the cover of The New Yorker is. Whereas Jeremy, he knew exactly what this process was and he just ran at it with such intensity and commitment.
1: Do you think that he was focused on how he would be perceived or it was more pure than that? Like it was just like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to be all in.
2: I think he really wanted me to understand him and he obviously is someone with a very serious almost religious approach to acting and I think he really wanted me to understand what that was and what it entailed and I mean I think I did like I really took that seriously and I but my version of that was okay I I hear your version of that but I also need to hear other people's version of Jeremy Strong's process because it leaves a very no pun intended, strong impression on people who he works with <laughs> and comes into contact with. And part of what was wild about the experience, I
1: assume, is that he like just started putting you in touch with all of these celebrities, sort of like uh, character witnesses.
2: It was not putting me in touch. They just started calling. So I, our second sit-down interview was, I think, a month after that. And at the end of it, I said, oh, you know, I, I'm going to want to talk to some of your former coworkers and collaborators. If you have any suggestions, that'd be great. And he was kind of like, okay, I'll let me think about that. I can I can make some calls. And then about a week later, I was at the ATM, and I get a call from a no caller ID number, and I pick up, and it's Matthew McConaughey. So I had no warning. <laughs> this is going to be a terrible Texan accent, but you know, Michael, this is this is Matthew McConaughey. I'm calling t- calling call about Jeremy Strong, and I was so unprepared for this that I, I actually I was first of all I was like, I'm at the ATM. Hold on, I need to get my cash. Okay, and then I stood on the street. <laughs> I just stood on the street, like, talking to him for 10 minutes and recording the call. But I was so unprepared that I couldn't remember what movie they were even in together. So I was just asking, like, so how did you meet Jeremy? And then it just <laughs> it just kept happening. You know, my, like, Robert Downey Jr. FaceTimed me while I was eating sushi. And, you know, like, Chris Evans just it was in my inbox all of a sudden. So... That was obviously very helpful because usually this part of the process involves a lot of publicists and a lot of emails and he was sort of short-circuiting that. But the fact that he was going about it this way to me was more interesting than a lot of the things that these people were actually saying. And there was a period where I I, I had to answer every phone call because even if it looked like spam, it, like I thought maybe it could be Daniel <laughs> Day-Lewis. I had oh, right. no idea. <laughs> right. What did it say to you? What it said to me was that he just has this incredible sense of commitment and would just go to any length to to give me as much as he possibly could. But you know, at the same time, you know, I think being a profile writer is not really that much like being a therapist, but one way it is similar is that sometimes in the process of doing the writing or doing the, the therapy, you know, the relationship kind of echoes the stuff you're talking about and at the same time this was happening I was sort of hearing about him creating these relationships with really A-list actors all along the way so it told me a little bit about sort of how he moves through the world.
1: I mean there's also this line in the piece where you say like you walked away from maybe I guess it was that first meal wondering whether you were interviewing Jeremy Strong or interviewing Kendall Roy playing the character of Jeremy Strong.
2: Yeah well that was it was our second meeting when he said he had told me this whole story about his audition for Succession. And then he said, you know, I was thinking about the way I told that story and realized that it was a very Kendall way of telling the story because I'm in the middle of being Kendall. And that was when it struck me. I was like, how much of Kendall is in him right now when he talks to me as him. And then months later, when I was in Denmark with him and his family, I asked his wife, you know, do you sense a difference in him when he's working? And she said, oh, no, he's totally normal and makes time for the family. And then we started walking away. And Jeremy pulls me aside later that day and says, actually, I'm surprised she said that, you know, and, and said this thing about the legend, how a, how a spy has to memorize the legend of their fake identity and how he's like, sometimes I don't know whether the legend is me at home or me at work. And I, I was just thinking, oh my God, like what a thing to say that, you know, his wife yeah. was trying to tell me, actually, Jeremy's a really normal guy. And he sort of pulls me aside and says, no, I'm not. I'm, <laughs> I'm living this double life. And I, I mean, I was fascinated. I was absolutely fascinated by that.
1: I know that you're setting these parameters with people before you agree to do the profile. I gotta have two sit downs, I'm gonna spend real time, I gotta see you in action doing something. And obviously that negotiation around profiles has gotten worse and worse for the journalist side Mm -hmm. over the last 10 years. But I imagine that it's rare that you find someone who is like that aggressively invested in the project On some level, it's got to be kind of thrilling for you, right? Like, this is as open as it can be.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, another thing that people said when it came out was, oh, this guy hated Jeremy. And I mean, first of all, I should say, like, I am loathe to sort of police interpretations of the profile. I think part of why it blew up as it did is that it's a Rorschach test. You know, some people saw it as... You know, Jeremy is this insufferable diva. Some people saw him as a just a kind of delightful weirdo. And then other people said, oh, this is like a, an incredibly committed, ingenious actor. And I feel like he's all three of those things. And he's a polarizing person. So I that variety of response made me feel like I had represented him well because he strikes people in his life those different ways. But, you know, I don't think of myself as the judge and jury of someone's life, arriving at a verdict about whether I like them or not, I really think of the profile subject as a protagonist in a story. So my interest is in figuring out what motivates them, what obstacles they've come across, how they dealt with those obstacles, how other people reacted to how they moved through the world. So liking someone or not is not really much in the equation for me and most of the time when I was around him he was very good company and I was primarily just thrilled because I was getting such a wealth of material. Your last
0: day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two hour nap because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge, just a splash before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpresscom Amex. Terms apply.
2: Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for
1: That makes sense to me that whether or not you like him isn't a crucial thing for you. And yet you're spending a tremendous amount of time with him a lot of it, quite intimate time.
2: What was the dynamic like between you two? It was fine. I mean, I don't know, We, I, like I had a really good time. You know, we talked quite a lot. I spent several days around him in, in Europe and he was obviously very, very generous and really wanted to do a lot of work with me. You know, I, I sort of couldn't believe how great it would all be for the profile. Like when we're walking through the troll forest in Denmark, I just thought, well, this, I mean, you know, my my job was just to keep him going and like ask more questions and get more material for what turned out to be, you know, 6,000 words. You know, sometimes it was a little overwhelming because I would be working on other things and I'd wake up and have, you know, five texts from Jeremy and he sort of demanded my attention and that's fine. Like I didn't want to push him away in any sense. So I'd just be like, great, this is so helpful to know. Thank you. Maybe another way of
1: of asking the question is like, what are you like in that setting? Oh, that's interesting. I mean... I'm asking part because it's like, it feels really different to me than like, we're going to have two sit down interviews. mm -hmm. That feels different than like, we're going on a five day trip to Denmark together. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? At some point you're hanging out and I'm curious about what parts of yourself you bring to that and, and what parts you don't.
2: Well, I really respond to the energy of the subject, which is always different, which is just like a social skill. You know, for instance, I feel like I'm a pretty humorous person, and I often use humor to kind of lighten up a situation. With Jeremy, that wasn't really in the cards. Like, there's the part of the profile where, this was actually toward the end of our Denmark trip, where he quoted one of the great authors that he was quoting, and I said something like, you're a real sponge for quotations, just because he ever, there were so many quotations. Every other line would be, you know, as the novelist uh, James Salter once wrote. So I said it, I thought it was kind of a light comment that would get a laugh. And instead, it was the opposite, where he became really serious and said, well, I think I'm not a religious person, but I've constructed my own book of hymns. And to me, that was another thing, where the fact that he said that was so much more interesting than any of the individual quotes that he had quoted.
1: Right, I gotta tell you, I feel like um, even the fact that my question about how you are in those situations just ends up with like, and here's how I got to the thing that was really interesting, is revealing in and of itself.
2: Well, you know, it, to bring up therapy again, you, know, I kind of, I'm remembering now this line that Dr. Melfi has in The Sopranos, when Tony says that he's fallen in love with her, and she says something like, I've been a broad, sympathetic woman to you. So I like I feel that's sort of my job, like just to be a broadly sympathetic <laughs> person who you're comfortable with, and that means slightly different things to different people. I sort of calibrate mm-hmm. myself to people's energy, but I, I think that's just sort of a regular social skill that people have in life. It's not me being a chameleon or something. I just respond to people's energy.
1: Right. And it doesn't feel particularly like journalistic to you.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like if, if you're at a party like and you talk to 10 people... You know, you just want to be engaging and respond to how what people respond to. My way of engaging with Wendy Williams is different than engaging with Jeremy Strong because they're incredibly different people. I mean, with, with Wendy, I was like talking about we both have cats. You know, it's like with Jeremy, he wants to talk about just the depths of of acting.
1: Yeah, his book of hymns. Exactly. So you get all of these incredible moments and quotes with him. You've got screen after screen after screen of text messages you've heard from people in the cast saying things that i feel like just don't get said in profiles much anymore and they weren't all bad they were just honest and uncomfortable i would say they were naming discomfort and i feel like that's
2: just hard to get out of people Honestly, not really. I mean, when, when Brian Cox called me, my first question to him was, can you describe Jeremy's process? And his answer, without any prodding, was the quote in the piece. You know, Jeremy is a tremendous actor, but I worry about how I worry about the crises he puts himself through. Like, I didn't have to push for that at all. Like, that's just what he came to me with. And it was very thrilling because as a fan of the show, I felt like I was having a very Logan Roy experience. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, when I talked to Kieran Culkin, it was a very Roman experience where he was, he was on the phone, but he kept telling me how he was running around his house trying to do errands. And then at one point he was like, hold on, I need to reach for something on a high shelf. And if I was five, nine, I could do it without putting down the phone, but I'm not, I'm five, seven. So I'm just going to put down the phone. And, and then he got this thing and he said, yes, I got it. I am awesome. And I was like, wow, like the experience of talking to these three people, <laughs> I feel like I'm living in this show. <laughs>
1: It does sound thrilling and fun. And I think that's what I was driving at. It was not like you had to work particularly hard to get people to say things, but that again, compared to like whatever the average celebrity profile is in 2022, people were saying things that they do not often say, or at least with a tone that I think is pretty rare. You got to know you've got something special on your hands, but help me understand what the moment was like right before the story went live. And then what happened next?
2: There's an interesting moment in that's part of this job where you've spent a lot of time with someone and it it often feels very personal and very intimate. And then when you go to write the piece, you have to sort of take a breath and say to yourself, "Okay, I'm not writing this for this person. I'm writing this for the reader. And that's not to say that you shouldn't take extreme care with a person's story. But you kind of have to shift mental gears and say, okay, what would I say about my time with this person to someone who has never met him? And I mean, there were even interesting moments during the fact-checking of the piece where it just kept giving us more material. There's that detail where a friend of his from college talks about how he went and spent his whole first paycheck from some internship on Rodeo Drive. And he told the fact checker i would never go to rodeo drive that's not true and then he started texting me like if we're going to talk about my clothes we have to get it right because i have this uh, what was the phrase he used fanatically fastidious aesthetic and i know that i didn't go to rodeo drive i went to maxfield which is a kind of chicer more trendy place <laughs> and Then I went back to the person who told me about Rodeo Drive, and I was like, does this make sense to you? There's a discrepancy. And he said, no, no, I mean, I had never been to Rodeo Drive in my life, and I just texted another friend who was there, and we both remember it. So then I'm like, you know, that's a moment where you have to think, okay, there's this fact discrepancy. We could take out this detail altogether, but then my editor and I discussed it and thought, actually... This is an interesting discrepancy. And, and the fact that he's stuck on this is interesting. And so we just put in the phrase, fanatically fastidious aesthetic. And I felt like that in the end was the revealing thing about that story, even yeah. more than the original story. So by the time that it was ready to go live, oh, and by the way, when it did, a lot of people thought that the timing of the profile had to do with this episode of the show that aired that night. Right. And that was another factor, I think, that made it go so viral in the first week. I hate to uh, debunk this theory, but it had nothing to do with that. I mean, spoiler alert for anyone who's not caught up on Succession, that that episode, the second-to-last episode, ends with a shot that makes it look like Kendall is possibly drowning in a pool. And there was this whole speculation about, you know, is The New Yorker sort of timing this with Kendall's death? and is this proof that his coworkers know they no longer have to work with him and none of that is true the only reason it was published when it was was because my wonderful colleague rebecca mead was already working on a profile of jesse armstrong the series creator and that was time to the beginning of this season and so we just needed to space out the second succession profile as much as we could so we decided to run it the week of the finale And then at the sort of last minute, the web people thought, oh, let's put it up the previous night to sort of catch the wave of people watching Succession on Sunday. That is it. You hadn't seen that episode? I had seen the second to last episode, but I hadn't watched the finale. So I knew that Kendall didn't drown in the pool because when we were in Italy on our way to the airport, Jeremy told me about this scene in the last episode that he's in where he sort of crumples on the ground and cries and he didn't tell me what actually happens in the scene but he was I almost put that in but I'm so glad I didn't because it would have been a huge spoiler and I didn't wouldn't even have known but that is evidence of where your head was which was that the internet was not going to freak out that Kendall had died no 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 so the story came out I mean, I felt that whole day like I wanted to throw up, but maybe that's just like a normal, a big story I worked on is about to be published sort of feeling. Is that normal for you or did this feel different? I guess this felt different. I mean, I kind of had the feeling that it was taking a big swing as a piece. I mean, it felt like that to me too, but I'm interested in your
1: articulation of that. Like what felt like a big swing about it to you?
2: Well, I guess the way I wrote it in the end didn't feel to me like a celebrity profile. And I've written many, but I kind of almost felt like I was writing a Patricia Highsmith novel. Like I was writing about this person who was very unusual and very singular and very intense. And I didn't know what he would think of it. I didn't know sort of what the world would make of it because I wasn't writing it in the context of, you know, like celebrity journalism. I just thought this is like a character study. And again, that's not to say that I wrote it thinking this is a hit piece because I I really just wanted it to be a complex psychological portrait that was fun to read and told you who Jeremy Strong was. So I just I didn't know what people would make of it. But I I never anticipated everything that happened next. And, And the first 48 hours, especially, were just honestly exhilarating. I mean, to have something that you've written and worked on for six months be so widely read and shared and people picking out specific lines like the internet talking about like the Al Pacino masterclass and what the Shrek just happened I mean these were things that were just like in a draft a few weeks before and so I will say that the fact that people responded saying oh my gosh this is insane and stuff like that it felt a little bit validating because the process of reporting it had felt so insane and unusual that right. so I I felt like in some ways the response was commensurate to me feeling like this was a journey. So it was great. And I just I started hearing from people from my past, writers I really respect and admire, who I have never met. And everyone at the magazine was just incredibly supportive and, and excited. I knew though, you know, I, at a certain point, I have seen enough viral things happen to know that at a certain point, it needs to change direction. I had this feeling like, okay, this is now big enough that it's going to go somewhere else. But I didn't know where that was. So then that Tuesday night, 48 hours after it came out, I was sitting on the couch with my husband watching a rerun of The Nanny and scrolling through Twitter. And that's when I see that Jessica Chastain has tweeted a defense of Jeremy Strong. <laughs> and so that that's when I was like, okay, this is like phase two of whatever this is.
1: And what was your response to phase two, which was many... Hollywood luminaries, Aaron Sorkin, uh, all kinds of people coming out and saying not only is Jeremy great, but that this was a hit piece.
2: What was really gratifying about it was that when someone like Jessica Chastain came out and tweeted that, there were so many people who responded and said, What are you talking about? This wasn't a hit piece. This story was great. Or like, this just made him seem fascinating, or, you know, a few people who who started commenting on celebrity journalism in general and saying, you know, celebrities are so used to stage-managed, PR-driven puff pieces that anything slightly off of that script gets this huge response. So I felt like there is this sort of disconnect between how the general readership was receiving the story and how kind of Jeremy's celebrity friends were perceiving it. I still have no idea if he was asking these people to do this on his behalf. I mean, it seemed like, in a way, a part of the piece is about how he has leveraged these relationships with A-list actors. And I thought maybe this whole thing was perhaps a real-time example of that. But I have no idea. I'm sure, you know, look, it's great that he has friends who felt this way about him. And, you know, they have every right to say what they want to say. But I felt in a way that everything that these defenders said there was this pushback against them saying that he doesn't need a defense or this was just good journalism. Now, the Aaron Sorkin thing was kind of its own thing because this was on the Friday. And I remember that Friday afternoon, his name was finally not trending anymore on Twitter. And so I thought to myself, okay, well, this has been fun and weird and now it's over. And then, you know, around 6 p.m., 6.30 that night, I see that Aaron Sorkin has written this memo on letterhead, and Jessica Chastain has tweeted it. And to be honest, my first impulse when I saw that was a, a bit of panic because it's just uncomfortable for someone to be sharing like uh, your correspondence with them. I mean, I would say it was an interview, so he had every right to it was it was an on the record interview, so whatever. But it's just like it's just a little bit jarring and uncomfortable to say, "Oh, the, see, oh, like my my email is up there." It's a little out of your control. Yeah, and then so I was a little bit taken aback, but then I read it very carefully and saw that I hadn't changed a single word. I had quoted him absolutely accurately and I also felt like the questions that I asked him were pretty fair and open-ended and neutral. So I was ultimately sort of cool with what was actually in the contents of, of this memo. And then by the end of the night, you know, it had become a meme where people were posting Jessica Chastain's line, you know, Aaron Sorkin is not online. So he asked me to post this on his behalf or whatever it was, And then, and then posting like, the, the Zodiac Killer Ransom note or the, the breakup right, post-it right, from right. Sex and the City. So it just became its own thing unto itself. Now, weirdly, the next day, I got an email from Aaron Sorkin apologizing to me because obviously every time any of these celebrity defenses came out, it would just add more days to this news cycle and then a dozen other entertainment websites would run these stories like Aaron Sorkin blast New Yorker piece. And so then I get this email from him the next day that said, Michael, I apologize. I didn't mean to quote blast your piece. I just felt I needed to be unambiguous about my support of Jeremy at this time. So I just, I found that very strange, like, because in public, he was sort of saying I had distorted. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty personal about you. That was the point where I was just like, what world am I even in right now? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I, it seemed to, I didn't respond, but it just, it seemed to me like he was sort of trying to have it both ways a little bit. And you didn't write him back. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even fathom what, what to say. But then by then it was like Anne Hathaway had started Instagramming about Jeremy too. So I was like. You know, I was, it was December. So at the time I was making this joke, like this should have lasted one night, but it lasted eight. So this is sort of like Hanukkah.
1: (laughs) Magazine Hanukkah. Yeah. (laughs) Did you have an urge? I mean, if not to Aaron Sorkin, then to respond generally to all of this conversation? Like, I feel like you've said very little about it publicly, aside from a couple of jokes on Twitter, basically.
2: I was fine. Like, I mean, it's like, I was a little self-conscious of like, what will I tweet now? Because I didn't want to get into some Twitter fight with Jessica Chastain or anything like that. I felt like people were saying for me what I would have wanted to say, you know, like this scholar Anne Helen Peterson was on NPR and on the media talking about where this fits in and the history of celebrity journalism. So I just felt like I personally didn't need to weigh in on this discourse it was fine to just let it happen and also the weird thing about being at the center of some viral thing is that it feels like there's a lot happening but then i would look around and i would just be at home with my cat looking at my phone (laughs) So like if an alien saw me they would have thought i was just pretty bored but it was a wild i mean it was a wild ride i felt like i was on a a roller coaster and I, i didn't know what would happen next i still don't i still don't
1: have you heard from him no nothing
2: No, but that's normal. I mean, I often don't hear from people I profile. What do you think he would think? I wouldn't venture to guess. I mean, one thing I've learned doing this job is that you just have no way of predicting what the subject will think. You know, I did a profile of Adam Driver a couple years ago, yeah, and it was, again, it was very intense. We spent a lot of time together, and he took it very seriously. And the only response I got was the next day, his publicist had some issue with a line about his sister-in-law's Instagram account because his sister-in-law had once accidentally posted a picture of his baby and I mentioned that and they asked can you take that out it's cause like and I was like no we can't obviously but for all I know it's like you just never know what one little thing right. you can write an 8,000 word profile of someone and it's like one line about their sister's
1: Instagram account
2: yeah and what are you going to do about that I could have never have predicted that
1: yeah so you have no idea but like it's impossible that it does not have strong feelings about it. it's got strong feelings about everything
2: I, I don't know I feel so weird speculating I mean I think he probably you know he, he has that quote about how I don't necessarily think ease or even accord is a value in creative work so I think that he knows that you know he is not an easygoing collaborator and that his process involves a certain element of alienating people so I I I don't think that would have surprised him. And also, remember, you know, everything in this profile was fact-checked with him. So nothing came as a huge surprise, except maybe just the way it was all put together.
0: Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back Two days only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour.
1: Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras
0: Tour. We do, we do, Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben. Taylor Swift: The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs,
1: streaming March 14th only on Disney Plus. I feel like there's one more round of response and critique to the profile which has to do with class and some of it was there when the profile came out but elizabeth spires just wrote an op-ed this week about the profile and particularly around the description of jeremy as careerist ambitious and her experience of the profile echoed experiences that she's had in her own life she comes from a working class background like jeremy strong does where she feels like she's been mocked, condescended to for striving, for being ambitious in a way that elites don't have to. And I wonder what your response to that is, what your experience of that latest round has been.
2: Yeah. I I mean, this profile has opened up so many interesting ancillary conversations, whether it's about acting or the state of celebrity journalism or whether succession is a comedy or a drama, and now class. And I I feel like I'm just I've been so fascinated by all of the many discourses and I've followed them with interests. And, you know, in terms of this one, I I would say a couple things. One is that I mean I feel like the parts of the profile that are about Jeremy's working class childhood are some of the most sympathetic parts of the profile. I mean, that detail about how he and his brother had to take imaginary trips in the canoe in their backyard because they couldn't afford a real canoeing vacation is such an endearing detail. And I would never make fun of that, and I don't think that I did. I think it's possible that people kind of heard this was a a hit piece and then read it thinking everything was supposed to be a damning detail. But it's really in there to give him psychological dimension and sympathetic dimension so that you understand him and and even root for him you know in terms of the elizabeth spires piece i am certain that it describes a phenomenon that exists out in the world and certainly in her life which is you know elitist condescension toward working class ambition i mean so many people identified with that in her story which i think is a testament to that piece i guess i just don't really know if Jeremy Strong is the best example of that. You know, to take the, the Yale years, because that's really what she sort of pegged the piece on, and this classmate who used the word careerist to describe him. I mean, I, I just never got the sense talking to his classmates that they had based their impressions of him on his economic background, or even knew what his economic background was. You know, I talked recently to the person who used that word careerist, who said basically he didn't have any knowledge of where Jeremy came from or or his class growing up, but it really had to do with more the idea that he seemed to be using the the student theater scene for his personal advancement rather than kind of being invested in the communal effort of putting Mm -hmm. on plays together. You know, just to take the Al Pacino story where he got Al Pacino to come to campus to give a masterclass and in the process nearly bankrupted the Yale Dramat, which is the student-run theater organization. I mean, I always just thought of that as a really funny story because who (laughs) does that? Yeah, it's amazing. And there are people who read it and think, oh my gosh, what a baller move, which is fine. When you think about it, though, I mean, that budget is intended for productions for the school year, for all of the students to participate in. So if you're someone who perceived him as leveraging this organization to meet Al Pacino, and then you had to pick up the pieces. And then 20 years later, someone asks you, what did you think of Jeremy Strong? And you kind of roll your eyes and laugh and say he was kind of in it for himself. I don't think you need class resentment to feel that way. And what's Mm -hmm. interesting is that 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 kind of resonates with how some of his succession castmates talk about him. I mean, he's not an easy collaborator by his own admission. So I don't know. Again, I feel like that piece was very powerful for a lot of people and described things that they felt had happened in their lives, which is I, I just don't doubt it. And I think the piece made some great points about just class in America. I just don't know if Jeremy's like Exhibit A, mm-hmm. knowing the specific people in the specific situation.
1: Is there anything else about this experience that you feel like people should know? I feel like this is like your your definitive Jeremy Strong exit interview. <laughs> and you've had this experience that I feel like a lot of journalists
2: might not get to have,
1: you know? So I, I wonder whether there are other things that have surprised you about it or
2: whether it's going to have an impact on your work going forward. I don't know. I mean, just today I set up my next profile with a huge TV star. So I, I don't feel like if people thought okay that no one's ever going to let this person profile anyone ever again that has not proven true thank god
1: yeah that's that's good
2: (laughs) i guess what i would say is like it's worth it just to be to be honest to to take a risk if you're someone who writes any sort of journalism but especially celebrity journalism i feel like it's better to follow your instincts than to follow the pressures that are on you to write a certain kind of thing because there's a lot i mean there's your relationship with the subject and how the charm offensive that people put on. And there is the PR apparatus and there's the kind of Stan army that's out there. I mean, that's like another weird element for people writing about culture now. And I'm not saying, you know, write mean pieces. I'm saying write complex pieces mm-hmm. because it people will read it.
1: The question is whether there's enough in it, for the subjects to allow a
2: complex piece to be written. I hope so. I mean, I can't ever say like what people's motivations are to want to be interviewed, but I certainly think that people think of the New Yorker as the New Yorker profile specifically as it's kind of own literary form that dates back to Lillian Ross and Truman Capote. I'm not saying every you know famous person in Hollywood is, knows that history, but I feel like it does mean something to people and people will still want to do it.
1: Can we talk a little bit about your more general approach to that form? I feel like that's the longest I've gone on one article in a long time. (laughs) You've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, I read back through, I don't know, probably 15 of them over the last couple of days. It was hard to find a pattern of what you're interested in.
2: Oh, really? Um, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm interested in, in show business and performers and what do you mean? The
1: general, the the general beats. Yes. Like showbiz and performers, but there are people at all different stages in their careers. Mm -hmm. There are people early, there are people late. There are people who have made it, but they made it late. There are people across all of these disciplines. I would say the like wattage of the people has a huge range. You know, there are people that are household names and people that I think a lot of folks would have never heard of. I couldn't tell what was the common thread about what you're looking for if you're going to spend that much time writing about somebody.
2: I mean, I really look for people who seem interesting and who have, I mean, this is going to be a, such a bland answer, but just people who seem interesting. And maybe that means that they're like a an emerging celebrity or an elder statesman or somewhere in between i mean you know i just wrote about bridget everett who's a performer i've seen on stage for years and have loved as part of this alt cabaret community and when i saw that she was starring in an hbo show i just thought okay this is the moment for bridget everett she's someone who i think is doing something really fascinating and really just sui generis and i want to kind of explore what that is and so much of that profile
1: is about trying to capture what it's like to finally find your moment.
2: Yeah, but I think that's true of Jeremy Strong as well, especially with writing about performers. There's always like a period of struggle where they want something, but they haven't gotten there yet because it's a really tough industry and you have to sort of find the thing that you are destined to be doing. And if you were prominent enough to be being written about in a New Yorker profile, you had that moment where your thing sort of broke through. Mm -hmm. But it often comes after struggle. I mean, you know, I wrote a a profile in 2019, I think, of Julio Torres, this, like, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant comedian who is like no other person alive. And, you know, he has such a particular sense of humor that is so weird and so him. But, you know, he spent years working at a coat check. And then it was this, this one woman who, like, he heard at the coat check say to another old rich lady, have you read that article about how standing is good for you? And then that night he went to a comedy club and, you know, did his first set and talked about that line. So I don't know. I I do love seeing creative people figure out what their thing is. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I will share this because I don't know, it might be helpful for people who do this kind of thing or, or want to, which is that I have a little trick I started using in the past couple of years for profiles, which is that, I think of a secret word, which is kind of a, an overarching human theme that unifies the profile or gives it direction so that it's not just like a bunch of interesting facts about a famous person. And I maybe use this word once or twice in the piece. But what's interesting is that sometimes, often in fact, the editors will use that word in the title or the subheading or something. So that's really gratifying because that's how I know that it came through and that it sort of helped me figure it out. For I'll give some examples. Like for Julio Torres, it was imagination. For Bo Burnham, uh, I did a profile of Bo Burnham a few years ago when he was doing eighth grade. And the secret word was anxiety because he talked yeah. about how he had dealt with these panic attacks. And that's why he quit stand up. And that's why he chose to make a movie about a tween girl, because he, that's how he sort of found his way in. And so when the piece went up online, the web heading I think, was, you know, Bo Burnham's Age of Anxiety. Um, I did the pop star Troy Sivan and the secret word was Coming of Age. So it's just like a thing that helps me kind of write about a human rather than a celebrity, because I don't think celebrity is a hugely deep. It's not enough to sustain a long piece. So you may want to know well, what was the secret word for Jeremy Strong. And I'll tell you which is when we landed in Copenhagen, he said something in the car like, you know, I'm so glad I'm back here because I don't feel all the wanting and needing that I do in New York or LA because of the industry I'm in. And what was funny is that right after that, you know, he went on this hour long chase for a burger that he wanted and needed. So I felt like it was just like (laughs) straight out of a script from Succession. But then the next day, when we were walking through the Troll Forest, I love that that's how I just started the sentence. The next day when we were walking <laughs> through the Troll Forest, as you know, Max, he was like looking out to sea in this very peaceful way. And it reminded me of what he had said earlier. And so I asked him about wanting and he said something like, my whole life has been animated by wanting. So that kind of was something that clicked with me and I thought, okay, Wanting, I think that's actually the word because here's someone who just has wanted this thing, which is basically to be Al Pacino or Daniel Day Lewis since adolescence. And he has pursued it in this single-minded way and he has succeeded in getting it. And that's what this is really about. And so I feel like that word only appeared in those quotes, but a lot of the, structure even of the piece kind of flowed from that you know like the lead of the piece is about those three posters on his bedroom wall when he was a teenager in Massachusetts so he is a striver you know going back to the Elizabeth Spires piece like he absolutely wanted something and Mm. he wanted it with just an incredible focus and intensity
1: so that word becomes a sort of north star a spine that you need to make sure is running throughout the piece and does it come late in the process like you're describing that it did with jeremy
2: sometimes sometimes not i mean yeah yeah i don't know it depends like at some point i'll I'll figure out what it is and again not use it a million times just like i'll use it but you know maybe once maybe twice but it helps me
1: helps you find the person in it
2: yeah it helps to like tell the story of like a human who another human who's the reader might be a fellow traveler on the story of this person's life. That is sorry, that is such a pretentious way of putting it. I realize, <laughs> but like, I think of these people as the protagonist of a story, and so I have to figure out like what's driving them on that story.
1: That's a fantastic tip. What a helpful way to think
2: about it. Feel free to steal it. Anyone listening, <laughs> it's not patented.
1: <laughs> you have to call it the Shulman. The Shul- <laughs> My impression of your experience of your work, both from talking to you today, but also in general, is that it's really fun for you.
2: Yeah, yeah. I pretty much got into journalism for fun. I did not enter this field to make the world a better place. Many people do, and that's fantastic. But I sort of, I really came to journalism in a very circuitous way. You know, I never studied it. I was a theater kid. I did theater directing at Yale, and I sort of thought that was maybe what I was going to do. I had this professor in college named Deb Golan who, she had come up through the feminist downtown performance art scene in New York City in the 80s. So the whole point of her class was to get people who didn't consider themselves to be writers to to start writing. And then after graduation, I came back to New York and I had these, uh, I did a, a, about a year of just kind of odd jobs. like. I assistant directed a children's magic show and I <laughs> I worked for this guy who bought and sold Civil War memorabilia. So I spent a couple <laughs> months like reading letters from Civil War soldiers and writing descriptions of them for an auction catalog. It was so weird. And I had this like vague sort of Hannah Horvath idea that I would write essays about these weird jobs. Of course I never wrote about any of them. But then I about a year out of college, I got this job at the New Yorker in the special events department that put on the New Yorker festival. So I was really like a production assistant and it had nothing to do with writing. I I mean, I got that job because I had done theater stuff. Like I knew about putting on live events and things, but once I was there, I had this feeling that I really wanted to write for the talk of the town section, which is a very, very specific form of writing. And to me, it, it doesn't have a lot to do with like, a newspaper news story it's really like a one-act play and my the writers that i loved growing up were these kind of absurdist playwrights like christopher durang and tom stoppard and john guare and i directed their plays in in college and i felt like that was almost the training that i used to try to write a talk of the town piece because they're very dialogue heavy they're sort of they sort of embrace the absurdity of people they're like they you know they're they're like an absurdist one act that is 100 percent nonfiction. so you have to find the things in life that are like that
1: mm-hmm. i got two more questions and then i'll let you go thinking about that tip you have about having a, a like a word a theme a north star for these profiles is there like a word for that <laughs> for you? Like is there a like is there a thing? Like, is it interesting? Is it fun? Like is there a driving thing I think
2: it's the I think the word would be fun. I'm a I'm a I'm a pleasure seeker. I like having fun with what I do. I don't know if that necessarily means the subjects have to be fun people, although they often are. But I think that I do enjoy spreading a sense of fun and play. Is any part of this hard for you? Yeah, it's a hard job. <laughs> There's a lot that's hard. I mean Absolutely. But it's a wonderful job. I mean, to, to get to meet these incredibly talented people. Uh, Jeremy Strong, first and foremost among them. I mean, he's just an incredibly gifted actor. And to hear him talk with such depth about how he does that, I was riveted. I was absolutely riveted. I've never met anyone like him. And I mean, that that's just an incredible privilege to be able to see someone on a TV show whose performance you love and then spend days talking to them about it, you know, that's an incredibly fun job. You know, it's work, but it's fun.
1: Well, it's been a, uh, it's been a real privilege to talk to you about it for so long. Thanks for answering all my questions about One Profile. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Max. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Gabriella Saldivia. Susan Peterson did the show notes. Thanks to them. Thanks so much to Michael Schulman for taking some time to talk to me about the art of the profile. And thanks to our friends at Fox who helped make this show possible. We'll see you next week.